was laying there in, in bed with Claire one night and she looked up at the ceiling and she's staring up at the ceiling and then she like reaches over and she grabs my face and she like turns my face so that it's like right in her face. And she was like, mommy said, never give up. Never, ever give up. Like, just so like, oh my God, like she, this child wanted to give me this message, you know? Um, and I said, what baby? I'm like, what did you just say? She's like, mommy, never give up. And I said, okay. I'm like, I, I won't. <laughs> you know, like, she was so serious. She was so like, this was something she had to tell me. I'm a two-year-old. It's like, how does this happen? Hello, and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right into today's episode. Welcome to today's episode. I am so excited to have my friend, Jen Zwink. She is a podcast host of Widow 180. She's a mother. She's a widow. She's an optometrist. How many hats do you wear? What other hats do you wear? <laughs> what other one am I missing? <laughs> mother, daughter, son. Not son. Not son. <laughs> Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for having me, Kendra. I love your show. I'm so excited to be here to talk to you today. I'm so excited you're here too. Now, I'm going to tell the listeners something. So we actually recorded this a while back. I'm very transparent, so I'm going to tell the listeners this. We recorded this a few months ago, and the internet uh, gods were not in our favor that day because afterwards when I heard the podcast, the sound was horrible on my end. It was not good connection. I was like, oh no, now I have to try to ask Jen to come on again. And so Jen and I have chatted then a few times, but yeah. since it's been a few months, it will be like listening to your story fresh and new for myself again. <laughs> and oh, and FYI, we just talked for like 25 minutes just prior to recording, just exchanging little notes here and there because <laughs> we're both podcasters. It's like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, do you need a host? I have another guest for you here. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I love that too. I love the little community and support. It's not a competition, right? It's like, it's like, oh, no. let's support each other. And, <laughs> it's, and then, <laughs> it's, it's all, it's all a learning game too. We're like, how do you, how are you doing this? And what works yeah. for you? Right. Yeah, because it's it is. We we just all launched this recently. So let's um um let's actually let's go to that. When did you launch your podcast? And um when did you launch it? This last year, right? Too? I did, yes. It was July of 2020. Um but the idea was actually in my head for like two years prior to that. 
<laughs> it was brewing. It, it was, was brewing. And then Until it just I couldn't take it anymore. took me and forever then. to make it happen, but it did actually happen finally. And it's been life-changing for me. So I, I love doing it. I just love it. Love it. Awesome. And it's called Widow 180. And we'll find out the why right now as we hear this story. So Jen, tell us your story about then how did you become a widow? So my story, actually when I became a widow was in um, October of 2011. And this was just a normal day, uh, a Saturday. My husband had been invited to a bachelor party. And this was a man that never went out. He was a total homebody. He loved being at home with us. It was, we had our little girl, Claire, and she was two years at the time, two years and nine months. And um, so he was invited to this bachelor party in New Orleans. We live right outside of New Orleans. And he had um, decided he was going to go. And I was like, sure, fine, you know, have a great time with a bunch of guys. And he was going to be staying down there overnight so he didn't have to drive home. And I was like, I'll just see you tomorrow, you know, have a great time. Um, so he was texting me and we were talking actually the whole time that he was driving to go downtown. And um, so I had a really nice, long conversation with him. It was probably 35 minutes on the phone. And um, that was the last time that I talked to him. But so he goes to the party. He was supposed to text me. What um, what city is this in? What city? In New is Orleans. New yeah, Orleans. he was okay. in New Orleans. So um, he was supposed to text me um, when he got back to the hotel, like just to let me know that he had gotten home or you know gotten back to the hotel safe and sound. So I remember looking at my phone at like five o'clock in the morning, and he still hadn't texted. But I just wasn't thinking anything of it. I'm like, he's just out having a good time, you know, whatever. Um, So that was Saturday night. Sunday morning comes around and he was supposed to be, he was supposed to be home by noon to watch the Saints game. And so it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. I still hadn't heard from him. No text, nothing. 11. And then like the game starts at noon. He's still not home. I was like, what is happening? I don't know where he is. So I text his friend and um, his friend said, well, you know, let me go check at the, in the hotel room and just see if he's there. Um, so he went to go and try and knock on the door and find him and he wasn't in there. And so he told me, so he called me the friend and, and he said, um, he's not back in his room. It doesn't look like he made it back to the room. Um, the last time that I saw him was, when he left the bar and he left the bar by himself, like he was tired. So he left at like, I don't know, four thirty ish in the morning and all of the other guys wanted to stay and he was just tired. And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm going back to the hotel and he left by himself. Now that's the last time that he saw him. So his friend that, you know, this is, the next day, the conversation, he's like, well, he didn't come back to the hotel. He's like, why don't you call your parents? He's like, I'm going to go to the police station. Why don't you come meet us down here? Have somebody watch Claire, you know, call your parents. And I was just like, wait, what? This was, so this was by this time, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. So surreal. It's like, 
it's just like you you don't expect that you just gonna yeah. go say bye to your husband going to a party and then like not find him the next day like i i don't know if i would like that's just crazy okay sorry yeah, like nothing like no no communication so it was like okay where could he possibly be something you know something is he you know he if he, whatever i had no idea so I, so I did, you know, what he told me. I called my parents. I said, uh, Brent's missing and, you know, we've got to, he didn't come back from the party. And so my parents came, took Claire, and then my dad came with me to go downtown. Um, I brought some pictures of Brent. The police met us at the hotel. And then I had a couple of friends come down there too. And we just kind of split up and some of like, they were walking back to the bar to go and see, like, you know, talk to the bartenders or like, see if anybody had seen anything, like, where did he go? Which direction? They have cameras at these bars. And so they were trying to like get footage and the police were helping. And it was, but this time it was like hours had gone by and we were trying to trace his phone. So we finally were able to do that. Um, and we tracked his phone to a junkyard that was about two miles from the bar. So we go this, by this time, it's like, I don't know, eight o'clock at night. So it is dark and the police are there and they, you know, we tell them that we found, we traced the phone. It's in this junkyard. And I just remember standing there and like, it was my dad and these like four or five policemen and they were like, okay, well, they didn't want me to go. Like they, they were like, you need to just stay here. And I was like, are you crazy? Like, no, I'm going, I'm going like, what am I supposed, I'm not going to sit here. So I, I, we all go. And this junkyard is like, if you can picture this in your head. Okay. It's got like, it's dark. It's got barbed wire, like all around the top of it. And there's like, Rottweilers and like pit bull dog, like all like five dogs in there. It's giant. It's a giant junkyard. Okay, like something you would see in a movie. Yeah, um, yeah that sounds like a CSI type of, uh, yes, like one of those crazy exactly you know, kind of movie kind or TV shows. So or this is Sunday night at like nine o'clock, and so they couldn't get in touch with the owner to let us in. And so they called the fire department and the fire department comes out with the trucks and then they put up their ladders and they had these big spotlights. So they would go up, they went up to the top of the ladder and then they would like, they were shining their lights like down into the junkyard to see if they could find him or find the phone. And then they would like, they would shut off all the lights and they would say, you know, okay, Jennifer, we want you to call the phone and see if, like, we're going to see if we can see it light up in the junkyard. And this is a massive junkyard, okay? This is not like, mm-hmm. I'm like, this is a needle in a haystack. It really is. But this is what but we were trying to his car. Like, this is literally just the phone. His car was still at the hotel, parked the at the hotel? The car was still, par- yeah, yeah. Oh, so, so anyway, the, we did that for about, I don't know, 30 minutes or so. Couldn't find the phone. Could, still couldn't get in. The dogs were in there barking, going crazy. And so I just remember these two detectives, they were standing there and they were like, 
okay, ma'am, we just, we just need you to go home and, and try and get some rest and we're going to do our job. Let's just let us do our job. And, um, and you just try and go home and get some sleep. I'm, it was straight out of a movie. Kendra, I'm telling you, like, I was like, did that man just say that to me? Like that is, that is a line from a movie. This is not real. This is not really happening. Like, is this some kind of a joke? You know? So I'm like, you want me to go home? Like, I can't leave here without my husband. You know, I'm not going to go home. Where is he? Like, this is, this is, it had been like, you know, 24 hours. Um, but I did, we left, we went home and I had my little girl still to take care of and, um, went home and tried to get some sleep. There's no way that that was happening. Um, but I just remember, so I crawled into bed with Claire and I'm just sitting up in bed and I'm looking around and we had this little nightlight that was plugged in, um, for her and it was casting a shadow up onto the wall, but kind of directly in front of me, um, on the other side of the room. And I just kept saying over and over, I was like, Brent, you have to give me a sign. Like, I need a sign. Tell me that you're okay. I need a sign. You know, show me that you're okay. What's going on with you, whatever. And I look across the room and there's the shadow was his silhouette. Like it was, it was like life-size silhouette of him on the wall and whether or not you believe in that kind of stuff or not, I, that's, it was, it was, it's, still, yeah, it's your truth. It's your, it truth was, it was, it was him. And it was, it was the sign. And I looked at it and I was like, Nope. Like I turned my head and I was just completely in denial, but I was like, yeah. I don't see that. I'm not listening to that. I'm not looking at that. Give me a sign. I need a different sign. Tell me that you're okay. I just need to know that you're okay. And then I look back over and still there, you know, like it was silhouette of him on the wall. Um, and then I just knew I was like, okay, I'm like, that's it. You know, he's, he's gone. Um, I still didn't want to believe it, but mm -hmm. I felt it like in that moment, I was like, okay, like this is, this is real. Um, and it wasn't until the next morning. So of course I didn't sleep. I just sat there all, all night. Um, but it was eight o'clock in the morning, the next morning when the, the coroner's office called and they asked us to come down there to go. And, um, they said, uh, we're not sure that this is your husband, but we have, um, a, a, a good idea that this is your husband, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I had to go down to the coroner's office, went with my parents and my brother and, um, they brought us into the office and it was just this big, long conference table and the picture, they had a picture that was upside down on the table and I could see it when I walked in, I could, you know, I could tell what the picture was. And so the coroner flipped over the picture and then, uh, and then he took it away, like right away, he took it away. Oh. And, um, and I was like, wait, I said, I, I want to see it again. And he was like, no, he said, I, I don't want you to see it again. 
Um, and I said, I said, well, is he here? Like, is he in this building? I want to, I want to see him, you know? And because I, I still felt like it wasn't real. Like it still was not, (laughs) I needed the proof, you know, I wanted to see. And, um, and they wouldn't let me see him. Like he said, he said no. So, um, so what were the circumstances then of his, what did they find out of how he had died? The fact that they didn't want you to see him so, and then they took the picture away so yeah. quickly. What, what happened was, was he had gotten tired at the party. He had a lot to drink. He left by himself and they actually had video footage of him um, walking out, walking down the street. So they, they did get footage, but they did not get footage of what actually happened to him, but he was walking down the street. He took a left turn instead of taking a right turn to go to the hotel. He turned the wrong way. Um, and he walked one block in the opposite direction of where he was supposed to go. And, uh, two guys had followed him out of the bar they saw that he left by himself. So, um, you know, he was kind of an easy target, I guess. Um, he made it one block down the street and they, uh, I guess they came up behind him and they hit him on the head and, um, they took his wallet, they took his phone. So he had no identification. Um, and so he was found like, I, I don't know exactly how long he was laying there on the sidewalk, but he was found um, by a guy that was walking home, you know, from a different bar by himself. And he found him and called 911. And, um, but he he was already gone. Um, at least that's, that's what I was told. Like he was, they were working on him um, in the ambulance, but that he was already gone at that point. And this was to the impact to the head. Is that how they, is that how they attacked him? The, um, the, the aspect of, yeah. So, so he basically, they already had him at, when you were searching for him that day before he had already been found, but because he didn't have identification, it was not, they couldn't put together like, oh, the, and right. That they could, they yeah. didn't put together that that was, um, yeah. your husband. Yes. And we had, but we had contacted the police at like, you know, three o'clock, maybe four o'clock on Sunday. And part of like, one of the things that we did was call a bunch of hospitals, like, I, I was thinking maybe he had gotten hurt or something and, you know, for whatever reason, he couldn't call me. I don't know. I was like, I, I have no idea, but we had a list of, of local hospitals and his battery and, was dead or his phone battery. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, maybe he didn't don't... remember my phone number. I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was a concussion and lost yes. his memory of, yeah. I know anything, right. Anything but what actually happened. So <clears throat> yeah, I was, um, making all of these phone calls. And that's what I would say. Did, did a, a, a man come in? He's got brown hair, blue eyes, um, no identification, whatever. I was like, I don't know. It, have you, have you had anybody get dropped off or any, and, and everybody said no. Um, 
so that was kind of just, you know, where do we go from here? So we had filed a missing person report, but yeah, they didn't, they didn't try to contact us overnight that night. They just waited until eight o'clock in the morning on Monday. But Mm. so that was, so yeah. What do you tell that two-year-old, your two-year-old daughter, Claire, like what do you you tell her during this? Like, because she's so little, like, what do you say as you're like, they can't find daddy? Like what, what words do you use for him not being home? No, uh, to be honest with you, okay, like that first, so that happened on Monday. Um, I had to, I had to go back to my house and I, like, I can't even remember who was watching Claire that day when we went to the coroner's office. We had somebody watching her, but I mean, she's two years and nine months at the time. So I had to start calling people, like, and telling them that this is what happened. And, you know, it's a shock to everybody. I had to, I had to, he would just went to a party, you know, this is not so unexpected. And so I, with her, it was like everything with Claire was just a matter of survival and getting through and what does she need to be fed and be okay for right now. And I will get to this hard conversation when I need to get to it. I had to plan, I had to go and plan the funeral on Tuesday. I was out at the funeral home picking out plots and trying to pick out like what kind of casket, like I I was so overwhelmed and in a daze, I couldn't even think about having a conversation with her. And you're just going through the business of that's the part that a lot of times I'm sorry to interrupt. A lot of times, one of the things people don't realize those first days and even weeks, a lot of what happens in your grief process is business stuff. And it sounds really weird, oh, yeah. but it's like what you said about days is like, not only are you, do you have this information about it, but you're also trying to plan a funeral, trying to select things, trying to yeah. then afterwards dealing with paperwork, things like that. Like sometimes people don't really end up even experiencing their real start to their grief journey till a few weeks later after they're done with all the business, you know, and I'm doing air quotes as I'm here doing this. And it's, it's something, yeah, lots don't realize. So when you check in with somebody and they maybe don't return your call as you're trying to check in to see if they're okay, just know they're dealing with a lot of stuff that is administrative stuff around the aspect of someone's death that yes. you haven't even addressed the aspects of having a conversation, like you said, with your two-year-old child yet. So no. um, thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so uh, continue. Well, and then I didn't, wa- I didn't want to say the wrong thing to her either. Mm-hmm. So it was like, okay, in, we, we ended up having the funeral a week later. Um, so it, this was the following Saturday because we had a lot of people that were trying to come in from out of town um, Tuesday was the day I was actually making the funeral, the arrangements. Friday was the day that I could actually see him at the funeral home. So it had been, I saw, I had seen him Saturday when he left. And then I got to see him Friday morning at the funeral home. You know, um, it was almost a week before we could even have the funeral and get that done. Um, so I, I was trying to get through that. At the same time, I had detectives that were 
keeping me updated with what was going on with the investigation because they were trying to track down more footage. Um, they were interviewing witnesses or trying to find witnesses. Um, there was all of this other aspect of the case that was happening and that this person was still out there. Um, and so I, I also had that that I was worried about because they took his wallet. So they knew where I live, Ooh, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I was afraid. I was afraid to be in my house, even though, you know, nothing bad happened in my house. I, I was just thinking, what if, like, what if they decide to come here? Or, you know, I, I had no idea. I was like, my, my brain was just everywhere with every idea. Um, and, and actually, now that you said that they took his wallet, then were, had there been any activity in any of his cards? <clears throat> no. And that's nothing. the thing. No. Okay. Nothing. And Kendra, wow. when I tell you, this man probably had not even like $50 in cash. It's like, who has cash? You know? Yeah. What are you trying to take? Mm -hmm. That's like his life is less than $50 in his wallet. I don't understand. There's no rhyme or reason to any of it. Um, there's no reason. Pity, no reason for, crime for like uh, to go get their next hit or something. You know, they're probably, yeah. probably a drug, drug related or things like that. Uh, because yeah. what, right? Because if they didn't use yeah. the cards and if they threw discarded nope. phone it's not even like they no uh, yeah I, yeah wow so I had the um activity from the detectives um that was all happening and then back to Claire I was mm -hmm. trying to figure out what the best approach was, what was I supposed to say to her? And she had been, you know, she's barely talking at that point. She's kind of like asking some questions. Like she was like, where's daddy? Or um, there's daddy's car, like in the driveway and stuff. Uh, but it was probably a couple of days after the funeral. And I ended up going to, um, there was the children's hospital. Uh, they had a counseling center um, I went to them to try and just get some direction and find out what I was supposed to say to her and how I was supposed to say it at a, at a two-year-old level. Um, and so I, I did, I, I sat her down with, it was with my mom and my dad and my brother. And I was just like, I need somebody else to be here just in case I just really break down and I have to leave, um, the room. But I just kind of said, you know, daddy's in heaven. I took out, I took out a piece of paper. Um, I took out some crayons. I was drawing pictures, um, drawing pictures of him and of, I don't know. I put, I put, I made him look like an angel. You know, I, I put a halo on him. I put him up, I, I drew clouds and, and I tried to draw a picture of her and I just like, you know, this is us and we're here and daddy's above, he's in heaven and he's watching us. And I mean, what do you say to a two-year-old? Exactly. She's like, okay, mommy. And then like, can I have a snack? I, mm -hmm. I, I'm pretty much, I'm pretty sure that's, that's how the conversation went. It just, she didn't, 
get it. And that's understandable, you know? Um, Did that conversation change through the years, of course, as she was oh, getting older? Oh, yeah. And of course, got deeper and so forth, too, with that. Because yeah. you got to be able to explain a little more as she got older yeah. what had happened. Does she and know was, now all the details that uh, now that she she's not. Um, almost 12? Mm. She does not. She hasn't asked me at this point, like any of the, of the details, um, Mm -hmm. she, uh, she doesn't, she doesn't know the full story. And I think we're getting to the, to the age where she can, she can definitely understand that a lot more. So I know it's going to come up and I'm ready Mm -hmm. to have that conversation with her. Um, but yeah, over the years, it's definitely been, um, different in the level of like what I can say to her and what she understands for sure. But Mm. that, that first, that first few weeks, um, it was really another really strange thing happened. Um, about, I guess it was about a month after, uh, after he died and I was, I was having a really hard time. Um, again, just trying to like survival mode, right? I'm just trying to get through the days and do all of the administrative stuff I have to do, figuring out like work and life and all of it. And I was laying there in in bed with Claire one night and she looked up at the ceiling and she's staring up at the ceiling and then she like reaches over and she grabs my face and she like turns my face so that it's like right in her face. And she was like, mommy, she said, never give up, never, ever give up. Like, Mm. just so like, oh my God, like she, Mm. this child wanted to give me this message, you know? Um, And I said, what baby? I'm like, what did you just say? She's like, mommy, never give up. And I said, okay. I'm like, I I won't, (laughs) you know, like, was so serious she was so like this was something she had to tell me I'm a two-year-old it's like how does this happen um what what is your what is your real what do you truly feel happened there oh that was him for sure okay I was, str- I was I, struggling. I have, I was I have, I have chills struggling. and yeah the Andrew. fact that she was just laying there in bed looking up and now all of a sudden turning with such assertiveness, you know, to speak to you oh, that yeah. way. I, in a two-year-old, I feel I completely see that. I had This is a child know, who can barely up. speak full sentences, right? And she's like, mommy, never give up. Ugh. And like, and then she like, she let go of my face. And then she just like looked back up at the ceiling. So like, I kind of like turned my head. Like I was like, I looked up at the ceiling too. Like, I'm like, what am I going to see if I look this way? <laughs> you know, I didn't see anything, but I feel so, it in my heart that she, she was, she was relaying a message from him for that's, sure. That's beautiful. So beautiful. Okay. Crazy. So that is, that is what happened then at that time. Now take us, since I know that I remember this part of the story into what then, um, the incident right before you decided you were going to leave. So oh, your God. Okay. food with your mom at a restaurant, yes. at, at a restaurant, 
fast food restaurant. So this was let's so Brent, that's a, so Brent was killed mm-hmm. October sixteenth. Um, he was killed. Um, this was um, two weeks later. So not it was shortly after. It was the week after the funeral. And again, I'm still like afraid of being in my house and whatever. So my mom said, uh, she was running some errands. She's like, come and meet me for lunch. Um, and then we'll go run errands together. I was like, okay. So I meet her at this, at a McDonald's and I have Claire and we go, uh, we're in the McDonald's and my mom takes Claire into the bathroom and we were potty training her at that point. But I was sitting there at the table, just in a daze, and I'm sitting there eating my French fries, and I hear, like, behind the counter, the the workers are kind of talking back there, and, and it's getting kind of loud, and I was like, okay, what's happening? I don't, something is happening. I don't know. Um, and then I see right outside of the window, so I look to the right, and a cop car pulls up, like, screeches, like, right outside the window. And this policeman gets out and then he runs into the McDonald's. He has his gun out, runs in, he goes into the men's bathroom and then he comes running back out with his gun up, whatever. He jumps back in the car and then er, he like screeches off and drives off. Look, wait, there's sound effects and everything in this one, you guys. Sound effects. (laughs) This is exactly what happened. I am not kidding you. This is the part two of your movie. It's like the the is, the junkyard okay. with like the junkyard with the Rottweilers outside. Like I, you know, you I'm like breaking moving this up, up, right? <laughs> you know, no, I know you're not. And Crazy. that's the thing. It's like life. You know, when we see movies, we gotta know. Or in these shows, there, that's the thing. These things have actually happened to some extent to people. It's like so. Yes. What you're saying with the screeching. Okay, so then this okay. police car. I, I, yeah, I, I always interrupt because I always <laughs> like to also add the, the lighthearted part of here in the conversation <clears throat> is something that's hard, right? Oh, my so, God. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> so, so I'm sitting there, and it's like slow motion eating my French fries, right? Like, I am just like, what the hell is happening? Um, so, so I'm like totally visualizing that, I, that whole thing of like the French fry, like literally like hanging from your lip, like, yeah, uh, I'm like, like okay. this, you know, and your daughter, yeah. the thing about it, they run to the bathrooms, like, and your daughter's in there with your mom, like, yeah, I'd be freaking so out. Okay. They come, they, so I look out, I look over and I hear the, and then I hear the worker say, oh, um, that bank across the street just got robbed and the, and the guy was like running over to the McDonald's, you know, that's, that's what had happened. Um, and, and then I look over and my mom is walking out of the bathroom with Claire and my mom is like oblivious to what's happening. She's like, guess who just went on the potty? Like she's all excited about, about the potty training. And I lost it. Like I went crazy in the McDonald's and I started crying and shaking. I was like, mom, I'm like, this is what just happened. I'm like, you, to- you totally missed it. This is what just yeah. happened. I'm like this and this, and, and the people are still talking behind the counter. And, and, um, I just, I started shaking and crying and I was just like, what is happening? And this is a good neighborhood. Okay. This is not like, 
-hmm. like bad things don't happen in this neighborhood. It is a very nice neighborhood. And this happened to happen on that day, two weeks after my husband is killed. Um, And I was just like, my world is closing in on me and I do not feel safe. Mm. (laughs) That's right. So I just said, um, I I, got to go. Like, I I don't know. I can't can't be here. I can't be here. My mom had to, had to like take me and like physically hold my shoulders. And we we go to walk outside and she's like, you got to get some air. Cause I felt like I couldn't breathe. I was just, I was having a panic attack, you know, like you just said, well, what you just said, like you felt the world was closing in on you. That is so claustrophobic. Like you're right. You can't breathe because that is exactly what is happening. It's like, seeing like these walls and Deanna Jones style kind of thing of the walls just kind of, you know, closing and closing and closing on you. Yeah. Like I, oh. it was violence. It was a lot of violence. Oh. And I oh. was just like, it's, it's, it's too close, you know, oh. all of it. It's, it's too close to me. Um, and, and that's what I felt like, like in, in that moment, I was like, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I have to leave, you know? So I was like, she took me outside and, and I said, what, is happening. Like what is happening in the world? Uh, you know, I just, I started asking all these questions. I was like, I can't deal with this mom. I was just like, you know, she's hearing me like rant and rant and rant. And I was just like, I, I'm really not handling this well. And anyway, I was crying and I I kept saying things like, I just, I just want to go away. I just, I can't be here. I can't be here. Um, and Claire is like, a beautiful sunny day I remember this and she's running around and there's these little butterflies and she's like chasing the butterflies and we're outside like in that front in front of the McDonald's <clears throat> and um so I'm like having a nervous breakdown and my mom is trying to talk to me and then you know how when it's like you get your food at the McDonald's or whatever and you, and they left out the French fries and you have to like pull, they're like, pull up a little bit, you know, like go sit just right up, right in front of the, uh, the little drive through window. Um, this, it was a minivan pulls up and they stopped like right next to the little play park where we were standing. And it's a family in there. It was a guy. And then the wife is sitting next to him. They have kids in the back of the minivan and I just, he had his window down and I guess he's like just watching, like watching me have this nervous breakdown. But then he, he said, excuse me. He was like, ma'am, uh, you have a beautiful daughter. Like he said that to me. Mm-hmm. And I kind of stopped, like I stopped, I stopped hyperventilating and I stopped crying. And I like look over at this man who is just a random man with his family in a minivan and he snapped me out of it, you know? It was like, again, it was some kind of divine intervention because- It's again, the, the don't is like your, again, little Claire's hands on your face saying never ever yes. give up. It's that whole thing of like, come back to the to what really <laughs> is the most important aspect right now in your life. Yeah. And it's your daughter and being okay for her. And in that moment, oh, wow. Yeah. He said, you have a beautiful daughter. And I don't even, I don't even remember what I said to him, but I I just kind of looked at him and then I looked over at her and I was like, oh my God, he's right. You know, like I do have a beautiful daughter. I need to be here for her. I need to get my stuff together. Like this cannot be me, you know? Um, 
I, I, I need to do something. I need to handle myself better and get a grip, you know? Um, but I also had that part of me that was like, I don't, I don't feel safe here. So I immediately went home. I went straight from there, went home, and I booked tickets to, um, to go to our favorite vacation place, which was uh, the Turks and Caicos Islands. It's a little island, Providencialis, is in the uh, Caribbean. And I said, I'm going to go down there for like two weeks. I'm going to go with Claire. We're going over Thanksgiving break. Um, I just want to like get away, you know? And um, <clears throat> so I booked those tickets. A couple of weeks later, we went. And it was probably on our third day down there um, when I was like, I, I feel like I need to stay. And Brent and I had been to the, we had been to that island probably twice a year for the five years before that. So we were pretty familiar with it. We loved it. It was, um, it was our, our fun place, our vacation place. And it was super peaceful and just quiet. And it's not a big party place. There's not much there. Um, so I said, you know, I think this is where I need to be. I just felt it. I felt it was, it was like this like nudge of the universe, like this is where you need to be. And logically that did not make a whole lot of sense because I didn't know anybody on that island, not a soul, not a single person. Um, and it was just going to be Claire and I, and he, you know, by myself and my, my, my husband has just been killed. I just felt in every part of my being that I needed to be there. Mm -hmm. So I found a place in that two weeks that we were down there. I found a place uh, to stay that was going to give me uh, a one year lease. And I said, you know, I think, I think this is what I'm going to do. And so I uh, came back home and I told my family and I said, uh, I said, I'm going to go and I'm going to go for a year. And they were like a year, you know, that's kind of a long time. What about just six months? And, and I said, nothing is going to change in six months. I know that like this, this feeling is not going to go away in six months. And I said, I'm going to go for a year. And their response was, I mean, of course they were concerned. Nobody tried to talk me out of it. My dad actually said, well, nobody knows how you're feeling right now. You know, nobody knows what you're going through. So you do what you feel like you need to do. Um, whatever's going to help you. Like they were supportive. That's so you know? supportive. And that's, that's so true right there because he was being very empathetic as to what you were going through. And again, like he said, they did not know what it was. They knew what it was to lose a son-in-law and what they were going through, but they didn't have a child that they had to think about. Like, I mean, they did have you, yeah. you're their child, but a little too, you know, uh, now that was left without a dad um, to think about. And so that's, that is, that was so good that you had their back, that they had your back and they had your support. Oh, yeah. supportive. And the other thing that they, they, they were supportive either way. They wanted me to come and move in with them so that they could help take care of Claire. Like they 
would have gladly just let me move in, let me sit curled up in a ball on the sofa for however long I wanted to, you know, they were, they were supportive of that too. So, you know, either way they were going to be there for me, but I felt like I had already missed like a month of her life because I was so in this foggy kind of just what is happening phase that I, I, I was not in the moment with her for sure. Like it was like, I was so detached from being a mom. Um, and I didn't, I didn't want that, you know, nobody wants that. It, it was, it was like, I need to go away and, and make myself be responsible and make myself be a mom because that's what I am. And she needs me and she needs me to be a mom. And so I had to just remove myself from everything and everyone and just be a mom, you know, like I just, it was so January 1st, I, you know, I had signed that lease, uh, packed up four suitcases and, um, what did you do with it your was, stuff in your house? What did you do with your house things? So my brother moved into my house. Oh. And he he didn't, but he wasn't there all the time. Like he would go and house sit like three days out of the week. He would um <clears throat> he would stay there on the weekends and then he would go and stay at his house the other days during the week. So it it was somebody was in my house house sitting, but not all the time. But that was it was really, really helpful for him to be around. And you were gonna pay two leases, your own home or two uh mortgage your own yeah. mortgage and then a renting space for a year, but that's what you needed to do. So you move there, you get there January first, you're here with a two year old, four suitcases. Um what did you do then in that year of, of while you were there? And what, what was your journey then in your grief journey as you're here in this beautiful oasis? What a contrast to the, um, the yeah, other emotions was, that you're feeling before. So this island is, um, it's like 85 degrees and sunny, like 99% of the year. <laughs> um, it's, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And I, again, like I wanted to be in a place where I, I knew I had to, I knew I had to grieve. It was so weird, Kendra, what I did. Okay. So I had my condo that I had rented and the front part of it, like looked out onto the beach. So it was one of those big sliding glass window things, you know, the sliding door and, um, and I kept those shades open like the entire year. I didn't, I didn't really close those curtains at all because I wanted to let the light in and I wanted to, I, like I, I needed to have that light come in. I don't know. It sounds weird, but. No, um, it's like a, and that, you needed that in order for your healing. Like you moved. Yes. There. It was a therapy session from nature was being your therapy to some extent. Yes. Yes. And so in the back, in, in the bedroom, was set up on the backside of the condo. So it wasn't facing the beach. And I had all of those curtains closed and, you know, I never, I never opened them 
the entire so year that I was there. So your bedroom, you kept like the space. So, okay. So, okay. I'm trying to vision here. So, sorry. I'm like such a visual person. Like I'm making, so the, the front sliding doors in your home, always open, always sun coming in. Your bedroom yeah. though, you never opened. Do you feel that you would choose which area of your home to be in? <laughs> I'm, yes. I know, I'm, I, I'm, am I Am I totally overanalyzing this? But is it no. like did you choose depending on your emotion? If you needed yes. to cry, was that your space in your room? If you wanted yeah. to just kind of snap out of it, you'd be in the living room. Yes, yes, <laughs> that is. I love that. that is exactly what I did and how I and how I ended up setting it up. And that was I don't know how I did that, just like subconsciously or whatever. But yeah, I made this space. Where I could like this is my side space, you know. This is this is where I'm gonna go, and if I need to, just lay in bed and cry and watch reruns of Friends or whatever. I'm gonna sit in here, and this is where I'm gonna do it. But I, I, a lot of times I just I made myself. Uh What you're saying, though, Jen, you don't understand. Like right now, it's so wise because sometimes like you don't know what tool you've never been through this before you don't know what tools to use for your healing you just kind of like go with it so you created your own tools as you were navigating grief and this was one of them it was creating a designated space for your grief to be completely you know naked the focus basically. yes yeah, that's and that's exactly it and that you could express it there, but also knowing that there were other areas in which that that part of the sadness of the grief, because again, grief can be laughter and grief could be other moments, but that aspect of the grief of the of this crying and and so forth was not going to be like in the living room type of thing. So I that's yeah. just amazing what the your own <laughs> what your own you know soul or you know created for you for your own healing. Yeah. It was, it was a, um, I, I set it up. I, I did. I set it up for like, this is, this is where I need to heal. You know, mm-hmm. this is what I feel like I need to do. And, and then, uh, so Claire ended up going to a little, this was probably a month or so after I got there. Um, I had enrolled her in this little British, uh, school. Just, it was like, two half days a week or something. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough for her to go and, and get some exposure with little okay. friends and stuff. And, um, and then I had some time to myself, which I really needed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 I cried in front of her and I talked about him in front of her and I did all of that, but I, you need time on your own. You know, it's being a mom and it's, she was three. It's like, it was 24 seven. And I just also needed that time to myself. So I did put her in a little school. Um, And oh my gosh, it was so cute because it was British. And because Providencialis is a British island and her little teacher was British. And so she would come home and she would say, I I put the rubbish in the bin. Like she was... (laughs) 
That was so cute. So fancy, so fancy. And does, does she still say rubbish now no. at almost at 12? <laughs> no, I wish she would. It was so cute. Cute. Was so then how things. long did you how long did you live there then? How, were you there for the full year or were you there longer? Um, after a year, I decided I was not ready to come home. And so I stayed another year and I stayed even longer than that. I was there for almost three years. Well, and what did you do for work, like income wise? And could you work being in this either, you know, island? like how does it work in terms of those dynamics? So it's, you have to have a, a, a work permit when you live there. Um, there's a lot of hoops to jump through, but I did them all. And you, um, so you have to, uh, go through a lot of paperwork and then you can actually work there. Um, but they try and limit it to certain careers and, you know, so that it's not just a whole lot of people trying to come and work on the Island. Um, uh, so I did that and I just got a part-time, it was like a part-time work permit. And there, there were two optometrists on the Island. Um, and I ended up working with one of them. Um, and I did some volunteer work with the other one, um, while I was down there. And so I, I did a little bit of work while I was down there, but most of it, most of the time, um, I would come home cause we did come home. I didn't stay there you know, the full, it was, if she had uh, a break for like Easter break was like three weeks for her oh, school. Okay. Um, I would, I would, we would come home. We would come back to the States mm-hmm. and I would work in those three weeks. I would work when I would come home. Oh, uh, that's great. I, have so, I do. I have yeah. so much flexibility with my work. It, it was, it was perfect. It was just the perfect scenario so I could come back in, I could work, make some money, and then I would go back down there. Um, and it was, a, it was a good balance for, you know, for the time that it was. And in the time that I was down there, I just, I met so many people from all over the world. Um, and these people, they just, they just became, they were like my angels. Like, I didn't know, like I said, I didn't know anybody at all when I moved there. Um, and then slowly just starting to get to know people through the school, like other moms, um, and some, you know, other, other people that kind of came into our lives. But what was really cool too, was that like, we would have people that were coming to stay for vacations because the condo that I was staying in was right on the beach and people would come in for a week for vacation. And, you know, they would have their, their five-year-old with them or whatever their, their kids were with them. And so anytime we would be down by the beach or the pool, Claire would be playing with all these other kids. And then I would kind of talk to the parents and maybe we would hang out with these other people for a week while they were in town and then they would leave. And then, you know, the next group of people for the next week would come in just all these vacationers. So it was like, I was I was always surrounded by people. Mm-hmm. If I if I wanted to be social and talk to people, I could. If I didn't want to, I didn't, you know? Mm-hmm. Like um yeah, cuz you were only going to work a few days a week, like it was not like that and that was just like a work hat that you would wear, but in general, like it's not like you had your immediate social life like you did in 
uh, Louisiana, like around yeah. you all the time. The, the, ask, I, uh, curiously, do you, could, did you share your story with some of these vacationers? Like, would people be asking like, why are you living here? Like, yes. are you vacationing? Like, was it, was it part of your healing journey to also share your story with people that would, that so you'd that meet? is so interesting that you say that because at first it was like so hard for me to say it over and over. Like anytime I would meet anybody like that, you know, and I would tell them it was just repeating that story and repeating that story, but I didn't know it at the time, but it is part of the healing process is to tell your story. And I ha I was doing that just because of where I was, like I, new people every time. Yeah. Every time, every week. And I would meet new people or, you know, anybody that would move to that, whatever. It was like, I had to kind of repeat my story and kind of, you know, be okay with telling it, which it, it brings up a lot of anxiety when, you know, when you have to talk about those painful moments in your life. But, um, it was healing and I, I didn't even realize it at the time, but that was another thing that was healing me while I was down there was having to repeat that story over and over again. That is, yeah. And it doesn't, it feel different now, you know, uh, these many, you know, 10 years later, does it feel very different now when you share the story, like in terms of your anxiety being less oh, yeah. of, and it's more like matter of fact, like this is what happened. Do you feel that in terms of when you share the story? I actually, I still feel like a little tense mm -hmm. when I tell it, like even just now, like when I was telling it in the beginning of this interview, it was like, I, I kind of feel like that, that short of breath, like tense in my chest. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't have a problem with those like trigger words that that I did before, because okay. there were there were certain words that would really really get to me, um, and I, even like that like the word death, the word die. I mean, I could. These are words that like I had a really hard time even like hearing. I couldn't mm -hmm. speak them. I was like. I, I had a rough time with those trigger words for a while, but and it's interesting that you say that because I've I've learned that from doing this uh, podcast, uh, I have to sometimes listen to how the person I'm interviewing refers to the death or the loss or the taken from us or from you know yeah. the the way that they phrase it, and then. I've had to ask, like, how would you like me to refer to that incident? Be, and and it's something, um, and I don't do it every single time, but I've noticed in some cases, I'm like, okay, should I just keep on saying the day we lost, you know, the word I lost, instead of saying, even though that's not the word I use personally for myself, being sensitive to the words that the person that is going through that specific grief feel feels comfortable. It is uh, so using. true. Yes. Mm. Like when you just said taken from us, like that feels comfortable to me. Um, mm. But when I say the word, when he died, like it's something about that word. It's just like, I, I, I don't do so well with it. it. <laughs> it's, it's a weird well, thing, it's Kendra. 
No, no, no. I get it, Jen, because the thing is that in a conversation that I had this week with uh, with Rabbi uh, with the Rabbi that I interviewed, we're talking about that that it's it, in, in general we don't we have not even as children we we are not talked about death even as kids as often. He, he was saying about how we do a disservice even to our own children, like when a fish, goldfish <laughs> dies and the parent just yeah. goes, flushes down the toilet and go gets a new one and puts it back in the tank and doesn't tell their children. Or, you know, or they oh, send yeah. the dog, or the dog die, it dies and it just went, and they don't say, they just went, it went to a farm, to a doggy farm. Or, yes. you know, so, so we are missing the opportunities as parents. And then maybe in some cases, some of us, I, in my case, it was a little different. And maybe that's why I'm so comfortable talking about death. That was not, death was just matter of fact in my home um, kind of thing that, you know what I mean? And my, it yeah. was not something that we did not, not talk about <laughs> necessarily. Uh -huh. So um, it makes a difference in how then we as adults then may relate to that word because of however it was not necessarily talked about in our own upbringing. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. So, um, okay, we're going to jump forward a whole lot because we're going to move to the okay. present <laughs> because now we're going to, I want, a, you are now married and you now have a young daughter, yes. uh, but I want you to share your reconnection with your current husband because I just love that. Yeah. I love okay. your love story too. So, uh, you know, the, and how beautiful that you've had two love stories in your life, you know, yeah. that you have, and, um, yeah, it's just, it's just beautiful. Okay. And so please, if you don't mind, and I, and I, the only reason I'm like jumping like that is because you also have a, you have to record other podcasts later today too. And so I want to make sure we don't forget to share. Your oh, no. <laughs> so, okay. After we moved back from Turks and Caicos, I, I had decided to sell my house. Um, and again, not like nothing bad happened there, but, um, I just needed to move forward and I didn't think that I could do that in that house. So Claire and I ended up moving in with my parents and they had this space that's above their garage. It was like, you know, a three car garage or whatever. And they had a space that they built out this little apartment for us. And so a lot of things got moved around in the shuffle of going from this house to the storage unit of boxes, whatever. It was like, there was just stuff everywhere. Um, and I had, we had moved back, uh, it was a couple of months after I had moved back in with them. And there was one day that I was cleaning, I was like dusting off the, whatever, it was the dresser. And um, I saw a, a folded up piece of paper that said, Jennifer, and it had a little heart over the eye. And so I pick up this piece of paper and it's folded up. I open it up and it was this five page letter. And I, I sat down and I started reading it. And I remembered this letter. Like I, re I had remembered getting this letter um, when I was a teenager, when I was like 15. Uh, it was this love letter from this boy. Um, and he was going on and on about, I never believed in love at first sight, blah, 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 blah. So I'm reading the letter and I'm laughing and I'm just like, this is so funny. At the end of the letter, 
he had signed his full name. Like he had signed Doug Zwink. This is where I live. This is my phone number. This is a school I go to. This is where I'm going to be going to college, all these things. Um, and so I took this letter and I was like, oh my God, I'm like, somebody loves me. Like, this is what I was thinking. <laughs> I love it. So I remembered what where I had gotten the letter. Now this is this the story is back in like 1993, um, they had this youth um, gathering of all these different church youth groups, and there was during the summer. Uh, it was one August. It was August in 1993, and all of these different church youth groups, and I'm talking like 20,000 kids. Like it was all these 20,000 teenagers. Everybody got together for this conference. They did these things in the Superdome. We had activities. Um, so it was uh, Friday, the very first day of the conference. I had walked down the little aisle one way, and then he had come with his church the other way, and we met like right in the middle, so in 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 our seats. And we started talking, whatever. We hung out. It was totally innocent. I was 15. He was 16 at the time. Uh, church thing, you know. Uh, but we ended up hanging out the whole weekend. It was like four days. So like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday is when he left with his church group to go back to Michigan. Um, so he wrote me this letter on the plane ride back to Michigan. He wrote me this love letter and then he sent it to me in the mail. And I remember getting the letter when I was 15, but at the time... But I tell people, okay, at the time, this is 1993. Like there was like, there was no internet. There was no email. There was, you had to make a phone call. It was like $2 a minute or something to call somebody in another state. This was like different times, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 I didn't, I didn't have a driver's license. I didn't have a, a job. I had like, I'm like, he's in Michigan. He's going to college. I am never going to see this boy again. You know, like that was my thought. And I, I am a horrible person because I did not write back to him because I was like, I'm never going to see him, you know? Um, so fast forward like 25 years, 25 years, this letter, I held onto that letter the entire time. I had this letter in a box full of like old high school stuff. Now my house was, I had like six feet of water in my house for Katrina. Um, this box was up in the attic. Okay. Like I, this box went from the attic to the storage unit to, I don't know how that letter ended up in a box full of old bills from my house. My mom was going through this box of bills. Like it was like the phone bill and like the electricity bill from my house. And she saw the letter and she saw that it said Jennifer with a little heart over the eye. And she was like, well, this doesn't look like it belongs here. So she put it on my dresser. And so that's how that letter got there <laughs> into my, into this little attic apart, well, the yeah. apartment that, that we're living in. Yes, that she saw it valuable. Okay. So, and then, so Doug is then who wrote this letter. Yes. And then how, so what I, did you do? Now? So when I, I found the letter and then I opened it and I read it and I was like, oh my God, somebody loves me. Um, I saw his full name because there's no way if he had signed Doug, I would have remembered his last name. 
but he put his full name. So I looked him up on Facebook and I could not tell anything about him on Facebook from his picture or anything. It had nothing really about him because he, he doesn't really go on there. Um, but I messaged him and I said something like, uh, hey, I, I'm sure you don't remember me, but you came down to New Orleans in 1993 for a church thing. And I said, um, I have I have a love letter from you. <laughs> so I told him <laughs> and I said, um, I said, yeah, uh, I, I just thought you might want to see what your 16 year old self was thinking because it's really cute. Mm. And so like he, he messaged me back, I want to say like a couple of days later. And he said, I absolutely remember you, Jen. Like, that's what he said. Um, and so I was like, oh my gosh, uh, we started kind of messaging back and forth. And it turns out he was divorced uh, a couple of years before that. Um, and so it was just this timing thing. We start, he, you know, we started talking on the phone. Um, I wasn't really looking to be dating anyone at that time. And when I tell you, like, I was living in an apartment in my parents' garage, like with my (laughs) daughter, I'm like, I'm not really in like this headspace, but it's like a timing thing. You know, it's just like this you can't ignore those things when they happen. Like there, there is a reason why this letter ended up where it did. Um, And I couldn't ignore that. I'm like, how is this possible? You know, this letter has survived 25 years and a massive hurricane and 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 me moving 20 times, you know, like anyway, um, I I don't ignore those things anymore. That like that's like a, a slap in the face from the universe. Like, hello, <laughs> this is like- started. Yeah. Do you think that that was something new for you in terms of like the whole aspect of listening to signs, even from the shadow? Oh yeah. From the shadow to then her grabbing your face. To oh yeah. Gentleman saying, do you think all of that of really listening and being in oh. tune with what's happening is something new to you since Brent's death? Yes. Mm. Yes. All you have to do is pay attention to these things. Like, don't, like, there are so many signs and nudges that point you in a certain direction that you just kind of brush off sometimes. Mm-hmm. But if you really pay attention to that, them, it's, it's life-changing, you know, like you, anyway. So, yeah, so I got, I get in touch with him. Uh, we ended up meeting, like, re-meeting, quote, he lived in Chicago at the time. Um, and so we we got together uh, a couple of months later. We had been talking on the phone for a couple of months. And then we were like, maybe we should re-meet, you know? Um, so, yeah, then I had to tell my parents, um, I'm, I'm going on a date, but uh, it's in Chicago. And can you watch Claire? Like, it was like, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, we, uh, we went out on that date and then 10 months later we were engaged and then 10 months later we got married and then we now have a little girl together and and you still where do you where did you move then too because you were different so how did you guys decide where you're gonna move live so we I we did debate if I was gonna move to Chicago but he doesn't have any family in Chicago and like all of my family is still here in Louisiana outside of New Orleans and so we figured 
with Claire and then baby on the way, this was a good place to be. And he has a lot of flexibility with his job. Uh, he does IT, um, okay. yeah, IT work. So he works from home a lot of the time anyway. He travels a little bit. But um, but yeah, it just worked out better for us to be here. So we have uh, a new home and we started this new life kind of together. And it's it is, uh, unexpected, but... Uh, it's yeah. just, it's so like beautiful just to see how all of these little things just, you know, tie in. I needed you to share that because I'm always like, I don't like, I'm one of those that if I had still the Hallmark channel, I'd be watching those. And your story is like a Hallmark kind of movie, uh, <laughs> you know, it, because it has those aspects of that, you know, of the finding the letter. I'm literally, if I could just like, we should just send this recording to somebody to write the movie script of it. Um <laughs> Because I just see the moment of you finding the letter behind the drawer, the dresser, you know, like, I'm, <laughs> I just know. like that. It's just so like, it's, it's not made up. It's real. It is um, real. It is real. Jen, now what would you say? Cause you, so in terms of tools, your tools, you created yourself and your journey, you, you decided to, you needed to move away from the space that was kind of closing you in, you moved. Then you created your tools of knowing when you needed to be on your own and be with your grief and when you were okay with being with people by being in that space there in the Provinciales, is that Uh what it's called? Uh Okay. And then, then you... You use your family, of course, was one of these support aspects that you had in your journey with grief. Um, and then, of course, the focus being your being okay for your daughter was this other, you know, driving force. Now, what are some things that you could say that you are grateful for from having gone through the hardships that you did without dismissing the fact oh that you went through, you know, that it's not dismissing the fact that Brent died is uh, and here, right? And I'm, by the way, I'm sorry if I'm, if I use the word that you lost Brent, but, um, it's okay. what, okay. what, what is the, what are some of the things that you feel you've grown or that you, like you said right now, you, you listen more to the signs in life. That's one thing. What other things do you feel you can feel grateful for, or that have shifted or made you grow in this process? Oh, I feel like I have, my entire perspective on everything in life has changed. (laughs) I mean, like every aspect and I know what's important and what's not and what to emphasize in my life uh, and what to kind of, dismiss and get rid of, I guess, you know, um, worry about small things. I don't do that anymore. Things that used to be a big deal to me are not a big deal anymore. Um, but as far as being, so I'm grateful for my, my new perspective Mm -hmm. because I feel like I'm living a better life because of that. I I'm more focused on what's important. Um, and I'm grateful that I was able to find out, um, who I'm supposed to be in the world. 
Mm. You know, I was, I was just feeling so lost um, and unsure of anything, you know, uh, anything in my life. I, there are so many things that I used to believe. I used to believe in happy endings and, and, you know, bad things don't happen to good people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I had a hard time figuring out what I was supposed to believe in again and how my experience was going to turn me or if I would let it turn me into a negative, cynical, tormented person the rest of my life, or can I take what I've learned in that experience and, and turn that around and do something with it? Mm-hmm. So that is, that is just, those are all like huge. Those are all huge because they're, they're life-changing because also just by you already just changing your perspective on life and, um, and then the things that matter, just the ripple effect that has of how you raise your daughter and the person she's going to be because of your new perspective, not of course, you know, disregarding the fact that she's growing up without her dad. Um, but at the same time is that if you had not gained that perspective, then she'd also be growing up without, without part of you. You know what I mean? Like she gained a part of you, you would have not had otherwise. Yeah. I feel like I can teach her some of these lessons of what's important in life. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's not the material things. It's, it's the people that we surround ourselves with and it's the time, how we use our time. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff I'm, I'm definitely trying to teach her through, through all of this experience. And now also not only Claire, but now also Penelope that even Brent is not her dad. It's still somebody that's present in your family's life all, you know, all the time. And I'm sure, is it something, you know, with Doug, do you, you met, do you mention Brent's name often in your home? Yes. Yes. And you have a, you have a podcast called widow 180. Yeah. Which, Even though you're now married is still something that's part of you because you're still giving back. So tell us about a little again about the podcast and then how can people find you and your community? And then I'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. So it's Widow 180, the podcast. Um, and then you can also find all of the episodes on widow180.com. Um, but my reason for starting the podcast and like I, shortly after Brent died, I had a local group of widows that I met with. And this was like within the first couple of weeks. Um, my friend put me in touch with this group and I went to this lady's house. I didn't know anybody there, but I showed up crying and with like a box of donuts or something. Um, and I, I, I had these people that came into my life that shared their stories. They were like a little further along than me. Um, but I could see those people as examples of what was possible of like, you know, there is hope for me. Like I, I will, there is a possibility that I can be happy again. Like I don't feel it down to my bones and in my soul that I will ever, ever be happy again, like truly happy. I just did not see out of that 
hopelessness and that despair. It was like this overwhelming feeling, but I had these, these other widows that I could talk to and I could hear their stories and I could talk to them about how did they cope? What did they do? What did they say to their kids? You know, how did they deal with this work situation or whatever? It was like anything that came up, I had these people, they were like my lifeline. And so that was my idea with the podcast is that I wanted to put out these stories for other people to hear, like if they, if they don't have what I had, because Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be where I am today without those ladies. And they are Mm -hmm. still a huge part of my life, which is why Doug is very understanding of like, Hey, I've got the widows are coming. Like, you know, like I, I meet with them regularly, like not lately because of the pandemic, but uh, these are people that are in my life and they will be forever. So, um, so that was what I wanted to do with the podcast was to put out these stories of hope and, you know, to see these people that had walked this path before me um, and had, how did they do it? Um, yeah. Because when we don't believe in something anymore, like when we have no hope, like wh- what do we do? We, we seek evidence and we, you know, we, we need proof that there can be something after this loss. Um, that is and- so what I had never seen, heard it in that way that you just said. So when we, in that moment of grief, when we're hopeless and we can't even yeah. find it for ourselves, then we seek for, in others that reassurance that there is light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. Yes. Yeah? Yes. Oh, yeah. I had yes. never... I had never heard it in the ways that you just said it. Thank you. And I, I feel like, yeah, it's like you you can't become what you don't see. There's a, It's a saying. But, you know, to have that example in front of me and to hear that story, um, that's what helped me get through it. And so that's the, that's the type of stories that I wanted to put out on the podcast. So when I do my interviews, I'm usually talking to somebody who, I mean, this is, these are people, it's really opened up my world. Kendra, it's like, it's again, another one of those really changed my life things that has happened uh, out of this horrible thing that happened to me, but this is opening a lot of doors for me now. Um, But I'm meeting people all over the world. We all have this Thing in common. Um, everybody has a different story. Everybody has a different way that they got through it. Um, so that's what I, I love to hear. I love, like, I'm so super passionate about it. And I know you are too. I, but- I am. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I get giddy. It's like, why would somebody get giddy talking about, you know, grief? It's like, but it's just so intriguing. Just the human how how resilient we are as human beings and to hear those stories of resilience in so many different ways. And, and like you said, different ways in which each person got through their grief. Although I always find that a really common thread has been, of course, some kind of support, some kind of tool and something that they believe in that has kind of helped yeah. them through that. Yeah. Um, have you noticed that kind of, kind of line in most of your stories too? Yeah. The conversations? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's been, it's been really interesting and, um, and I feel like I learned something. I learned something new from every single person. And that's the other thing that I love. Cause I'm, I'm curious about everything. I'm curious about like, 
you know, life and other people's experiences. It's like, you know, what, um, I just love the lessons that I am learning by doing all of this. So it's really cool. Mm. Agreed. Agreed. I feel the same <laughs> way. And I am just, again, so grateful for you coming on my podcast, even though I can't be in yours because I haven't been a widow, <laughs> but I, I do send people to yours. I'm like constantly sending people to yours. And that's a great thing to all these friendships that we, you know, get to develop, yeah. like you said, the people that you meet and then the friendships that you get to do. That's another thing to be grateful for. Um, and again, as I'd like, you would like yeah, I, I always say it in a way that's still sensitive to the fact that it's not that we're wanting, saying that we're gr glad our loved ones are no longer here. It's not that. It's just that we always have to look at what else have we then gained in our own loss? Yeah. What have we gained in that process of losing something? Um, and even within this year, a lot of us have gained a lot of things even in this whole plus almost a year of the pandemic and so forth too we've gained a lot too even if I we've know, lost I know. so um uh it's um it's a very good way of kind of seeing life of what did we gain um yeah. not only what did we lose yeah so thank you once again my friend for coming on thank you so much <laughs> for having me on this has been so fun talking to you the same and we could go on another hour but we'll we'll let the listeners <laughs> tune into your episodes to hear more <laughs> to your podcast to hear more of your story and your 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 interviewees uh stories oh as yeah well. thank, thank, thank you, you kendra thank you thank you again so much for choosing to listen today I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.